Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, today on Babbage we're leaving the studio and the planet and heading into the depths of space. We have ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have liftoff. I'm Tom Standage and today I'm bringing back to Earth highlights from The Economist's annual space summit in New York City. The event brings together provocative thinkers, entrepreneurs, astronauts and academics who are together on a dramatic journey to exploit the opportunities of the new space frontier. Column on, you are go all the way. Everything looks good. Five minutes, everybody's happy as a clam here, looking good. So are we. Very good. I've just come off stage here at the Economist's annual space summit and we've just heard from Apollo 9 astronaut Rusty Schweikart. He was a former US Air Force fighter pilot and he joined NASA in 1963. He was the first lunar module pilot for Apollo 9, logging 241 hours in space. And here he is in conversation with Oliver Morton, the Economist's briefings editor. So... We met over the B612 asteroid stuff, but obviously the times that I almost think, because I very rarely see an asteroid, what I hear that makes me think of you is the line in Space Oddity where David Bowie sings, planet Earth is blue and there's nothing else to do. And you basically had that moment, yes? You were on your spacewalk and someone's camera jammed and you were unscheduled. Yeah. So how was that? Well, it was great because I was actually partway up the front of the lunar module going hand over hand Mm -hmm. on the handrail in order to go over to the command module. And Dave was taking movies of it. The camera failed. And Jim McDivitt said, "Okay, Dave, I'm going to give you five minutes to try and fix it. And Rusty, stay right there. (laughs) And it was like, right. (laughs) Great. And I'm not sure where that came from, Oliver, but I said to myself right away, For five minutes, I'm not going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a human being here and just let everything come in. Just be a sponge, absorb where the hell I am. And what surprised me after making that decision, I kind of let go with one hand, just held on with my left hand and and swung around. And here's the the sun up here and the, the whole earth, thin blue horizon, you know. So there was not even any noise. It was completely silent spectacular contrast between the black space, the beautiful blue earth, and all these questions all of a sudden kind of came into my mind like... Cosmic rays. (laughs) Maybe it was. (laughs) High Z particles, right? Triggering these big questions. It said, why am I here? What does it mean when I say I? Who who am I? What's going on? What's this mean? How did this happen? So all these things kind of came in. I didn't try to you know, sort them out and answer them then. But over the next several years, uh, you know, all of that was cooking along. And then I gave that talk at the Lindisfarne Association where for the first time I really 
articulated what I thought the implications were of humankind looking back at itself as we move out into space. You were checking out the lunar module in Earth orbit. Right. And that was the first time the lunar module had flown. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be in a spacecraft like that. So, number one, it's a great privilege for any pilot of any kind to be the first to fly anything. Right. So, you know, first flight is always a big deal. And, of course, in this case, it's the first flight of the lunar module, which is going to take people for the first time to the moon. So it was pretty exciting. It was also just weird-looking. People used to call it the bug. I think that's really fascinating that it's the, the first and really the only so far human spacecraft that was designed with no regard to an atmosphere. Right. Aerodynamics had nothing at all to do with the lunar module. And, I mean, you know, if you think about it, I guess it's still pretty much still the only craft, uh, except for satellites at mm -hmm. first, about the only craft we've ever built where aerodynamics is irrelevant. Looking back on the broader scale, what do you think now, looking back, that Apollo meant for America? Well, you know, there's all kinds of answers to that. Some people saw the Cold War, and uh, this was a test between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and of course they had had all of the first, they had the first flight, the first woman to fly, the first dog to fly, the first parachute, you know, first everything. And if you lived then, or if you try to think back then, that was an incredible downer for the United States to find itself behind in this whole self-image of being, you know, the go-go the country in the world and inventing mm -hmm. everything, blah, blah, blah. So that was a very important thing, to catch up with the mm -hmm. Soviets and all of that. So the Cold War, technology development, all of those things. But to me, all of those things pale in comparison with that view that first came to the guys who flew on Apollo 8 when they went out around the moon on mm -hmm. Christmas of 1968. And then, of course, later the, the guys from uh, Apollo 10, 11, and, and mm -hmm. on who were actually at the surface. But looking back, and especially Apollo 8, where they were the first people to literally see the Earth shrink to the point where you could cover the thing with your thumb mm -hmm. at, at arm's length, the whole Earth. And that realization, now you have to put yourself there and that is not easy for people. But if you can dream it, do it at night when you're half, you know, you're out of the box anyway, half asleep, and put yourself in a position where people for the first time are out there and everything is black and white and gray and all of a sudden this thing comes up above the horizon and you realize you're the first people who have ever been separated from this place which is the birth, not only the birth, but the container of all life and everything about life that we know. All of happiness and joy and death and dance and music, everything else, it's on that little spot back there that mm -hmm. you can cover with your moon, with your finger. And contrasted with the blackness of space, you, you begin to understand that we are all part of life and we're the only life so far that we know. The idea that the universe from the Big Bang on results in life and that life might have been in fact in some way built into the fundamental physics of reality, of natural mm -hmm. law. And here we are in our corner of the universe, the life emerging out of Mother Earth, out of Gaia, you mm -hmm. know. And that, it seems to me, is really the significance of Apollo. 
The other things are small in mm. comparison. The geopolitical issues are real. It's not that those other considerations aren't real, but in terms of the priority, in terms of the magnitude of it, to me, that's the real meaning of Apollo. And does that, is that something that has to continue to be refreshed, or could you argue that that's been seen now, and we yeah. understand that now? We've had a deep environmental turn in politics in many places. Um, is that done, or is there some continue, continued balance view between looking out and looking back? Yeah, well, I would say that in some sense, people have grown up now understanding the Earth is small. So mm -hmm. academically, I think, people get this academically. But the difference between academically knowing... So I, I often say when flying in space, I didn't learn a thing. Mm -hmm. I knew everything that I before I went into space that I knew when I came back from space. But the experience of it, seeing it with your own eyes, being there with your body, realizing it, there is a difference. And societally, I think the same thing is true with that. We're going to have more and more people going first, you know, getting glimpses with Virgin mm -hmm. Galactic and mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos, you know, and, mm -hmm. and things. That's going to be small, but going out to the moon again, people going out into space, into deep space, happening again mm -hmm. is going, I think, I hope, to refresh that, the significance of understanding that we are all of the life we know and we have a tremendous responsibility not only to take care of mom, mm -hmm. but also to continue and enhance that trek along the evolutionary path of life out of our small seed in the galaxy, you know, and in the universe. So that, that to me is something which I hope, I don't know how much confidence I have, <laughs> but I hope that that is rekindled as we move forward. Joining me now is David Newman. She's the Apollo Program Professor of Astronautics at MIT, and she was previously the NASA Deputy Administrator. And she researches the impact of space travel on the human body. David, welcome to Babbage. OK, well, I wanted to ask you about the sort of the medical aspects of spaceflight, because I think when we think about people going to space, whether it's going to the space station, going to the moon, going to Mars, we think of it as a sort of big engineering problem. We have to build these systems, we have to build these rockets. But there's also the question of actually keeping the astronauts healthy and, and alive and safe. So what are the challenges on the biomedical side? For our astronauts, really uh, look at about four, I call them showstoppers. When we get humans to Mars, it is a round trip, so we want to bring them back to Earth healthy as well. So the radiation exposure, that's the number one challenge for a human mission to Mars, and even to the moon, because now we're going deep space. Then we have to look at the musculoskeletal, muscles and bones, because they deteriorate a lot when we're in microgravity. But we can exercise, and we have a lot of research. We're making a lot of progress in keeping the astronauts healthy and well in terms of the muscles and bones. And I put psychological issues right up there in my top list. Why? Because you know, we're going to have four people locked into something you know smaller than a car. So isolated, confined environment really does change how people act. And so there's a lot of teamwork. There's really a lot of psychological issues that you have to deal with to make sure the crews 
you know, we're going there to search for life and find the evidence of life on Mars. And so we just had to be cognizant of what the team dynamics are, people are doing well or not, and basically providing support at all levels. Now, you've done uh, research over the years, both on the Russian Mir station and on the uh, on the ISS now, that looks at some of those things. And in particular, um, with the ISS, we don't have to worry about radiation so much, but we do have to worry about the microgravity environment. So what does being in a microgravity environment for a long period actually do to people? We have a lot of physiological deconditioning. So all of your physiology, your muscles, your bones, your cardiovascular, nerve vestibular, that's kind of your orientation. A lot of those actually do adapt. We call them, they don't get back to 1G, we call it a 0G, a microgravity set point. But musculoskeletal, your muscles and bones, we have 30% muscle atrophy, maybe 40% muscle strength loss. We see a changing of muscle fibers. But we kind of study that on Earth too, like marathon runners versus power lifters. Very different physiology and training. The bones, the musculoskeletal, the bone deconditioning, and we see bone loss and structurally, well, that's so important for astronauts, but it's really important for here on Earth, osteoporosis. So when we look at these, we call them biomarkers. We see how the bone's changing. Essentially, the brain, can you imagine? We're in microgravity, we're on space station. Now my brain's telling me, hey, Dave, I'm floating. Okay, maybe I don't need to build so much bone but we're still resorbing the bone. We're taking the bone up, you know, we're floating around. So to what extent can of doing exercise, does that stop the process or is it just minimizing, reducing the, the, the de- degeneration, is it? Work? We're trying to minimize it right. with the chemical countermeasure. So we're trying to counter those effects. So anyone who's running around with a Fitbit or even your Apple Watch on, you know, 10,000 steps a day, that's what I try to get, right? Well, imagine now those 10,000 steps are gone. So that's the implication is we don't have the loading on our muscles and bones. So you don't have those forces, you don't have those loadings. So you do a lot of exercise. The astronauts exercise about two and a half hours a day. That's the gravity piece. Then what about the radiation piece? Obviously, less of a problem on the space station. But what do you think we're going to have to do in order to protect people getting to the moon and Mars and uh, and when they're there? So radiation protection is is an enormous challenge for Mars. The good news is every, you know, we've been on Mars for 50 years exploring with our rovers and our landers. So every mission to Mars does flies an experiment called RAD, RAD for radiation. So we're mapping the entire radiation environment from Earth going to Mars. So we're getting a lot more information now about the radiation environment that the astronauts will travel through getting to Mars and then on Mars as well. So what did your experience in Antarctica teach you about going to Mars? So I've studied Antarctica my whole life because it's a great analog for Mars, plus what an amazing continent. Just as an explorer, I've been fascinated. So I learned something really important. We got off at McMurdo and I looked out and I just said, my mouth dropped and I said, look at all this mass. I had bulldozers, I had machines, I had all kinds of buildings. I said, on Mars, I got one rover. So I was just 50 years in Antarctica, but I was just stunned. All the machinery, all the heavy equipment, you know, I had nothing on Mars. So it just was this realization that, wow. That we're going to have to take, we've got nothing there. We're going to have to take everything. And it's going to be lots and lots of missions, just unmanned missions, taking stuff. And I think that's, but that's the wrong way to look at it. That's the Earth-centric way to look at it. Take all your stuff with you. Explorations never succeeded when we took our stuff with us going across the oceans. So we have to, it's in-situ resource utilization. Exploration, the best exploration is when you actually learn how to live off the land. Right. We know Mars is cold and you know relatively dead. So guess what? I give my students the challenge of you have to make the maker. You make that maker out of basalt. It really is a true replicator. You make the machines there. So that's the challenge as an engineer is that we have to, we can't bring everything with us. We'll go with some, it's like camping. You go with some preliminary systems and life support. So we've kind of made it too easy for ourselves in Antarctica by just taking stuff, you know, just shipping it over there. We need to, we need to think much more about using the resources in Absolutely. the place we're exploring. Absolutely. And the good thing is MOXIE is an experiment on the Mars 2020 rover. For the first time, we're going to make oxygen on a planet. 
So we'll take the carbon dioxide atmosphere, you know, split those carbon atoms off. What are you left with? Oxygen. Now it's not enough for a human, but think about that. That's revolutionary, making oxygen on another planet, just to demonstrate it. So those are the kind of technologies, bioregenerative life support systems. You know, how do we get all these systems to keep humans well and alive? But we have to, I think, think about it different. We can't take everything with us. Brilliant. Thank you. One of the really striking things is how different nations have been able to cooperate in space, even when there have been tensions on Earth. Will this continue to be the case? To discuss this, I'm joined by Leroy Chow, who is a former NASA astronaut, has been to space four times, is that right? And by Simonetta Di Pippo, who is the director for the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs. Uh, Leroy, perhaps I could start with you. Um, so you've been a NASA astronaut, but you've also, uh, you speak Chinese and Russian, and you've, uh, you've worked with Chinese and Russian astronauts as well. When you get together with them, is it really true that all the uh, geopolitical rivalries melt away and you're all just astronauts together or is there actually a little bit of rivalry under the surface <laughs> well i mean it is true we all become friends you know flyers all kind of think the same way so uh, when we meet each other we kind of have a, an immediate common bond and so we do become friends and we do have differences of opinions just like friends do and particularly when i was training in russia depending on the world events that were going on we'd have sometimes heated debates about what was going on but you know but we were always still friends and so there is that uh, not, I don't know if you'd call it competition, but just, just among friends, you always have differing opinions as well. And what, should we have more cooperation between nations and then competition between the companies that are increasingly getting involved here? Well, I think it's natural the companies are going to be in competition with each other because they're competing for making a profit. Uh, countries, I think, uh, you know, basically it's to a country's advantage. You're not looking at economics because necessarily because you're being funded by your state. Right now, there is some competition in that it's good and that it makes your state think that, oh, I need to put more money into this because they're going to pull ahead of me, uh, just like we saw during the 1960s. But I think we've evolved in seeing that the advantages of working together and the International Space Station is just a great example of that. Simonetta Di Pippo, I wanted to come to you. Where does the, the UN fit into this and how does it help ensure that we're talking about cooperation predominantly and not competition in space? From a personal perspective, I, I've always been convinced that uh, um, in order to have a very good collaboration, you need to have partners which are balanced because otherwise, uh, I mean, this is not a real cooperation, right? So developing capabilities in countries, in, in, in the private sector, is, is really important to assure a long-term sustainable cooperation. So in my past professional life, when I was the director of human space flight at the European Space Agency, I even uh, was always supporting the idea of autonomy for cooperation. So for example, in the space station, in order to be able to really cooperate, you need to be able to develop your own model, your own experiments, and also being able to train your own astronauts. Otherwise, then it becomes difficult and unbalanced. Then, as Leroy was mentioning, I mean, the International Space Station and, and the activities, I mean, is a clear, uh, let's say, evidence of the fact that uh, the only way is to bring together different cultures, different experience, uh, different lessons learned, and then all together, let's say, do the next logical step. It all sounds wonderful. It all sounds like Star Trek and all of the nations of Earth working together and so on. But we are seeing the landscape change now, aren't we? Or the skyscape, I should probably say, because we've got China and India with big ambitions. India's prime minister saying earlier this year that 
India wants to put people into space much sooner than than people had thought. And then we've got these private companies who also have uh, plans to do things. Are you certain that we're going to continue to see this cooperative spirit prevail, or might it be imperiled by these changes? For the UN, the Office for Outer Space Affairs, we have strong cooperation with all the main spacefaring nations, by definition. We have a cooperation with all the member states of the UN, so 193, but with spacefaring nations for sure. So China is, is one of our main partners. We have a lot of agreements with them. For example, recently we issued a joint announcement of opportunity, which is open to all member states, was open to all member states, where the China offered the Chinese space station for experiments for all over the world. So this announcement of opportunity, which was issued by us, by the Office for Outer Space Affairs, the deadline was the end of September, and now we are already in the process of selecting the So you think there's going to be more and new kinds of, of collaboration. What about, I mean, Donald Trump is talking about a space force and there's concerns about the weaponization of space. Aren't the technological signs pointing in a different direction to this becoming an increasingly competitive competitive geopolitical environment. Again, from our standpoint, I'm dealing with the peaceful uses of other space. So what we try to do really is to create coordination mechanisms to do what we call the transparency and confidence building measures. So being really open, trying to bring everyone at the table, trying to bring them understand that the more they're open, the more they tell us and through us to the world what they are doing, the more we can really help them in collaborating with the others. And that's the only way to maintain the peaceful uses of other space. Leroy, what do you think about the idea of a space force? Do you think that's a good yeah, idea? Yeah, no, I think the space force, you know, to me, it's, it's really a head scratcher because, uh, you know, I'm not sure what itch we're scratching by creating a space force. It seems to me you're just adding bureaucracy, uh, adding expense and adding another service to have a rivalry with. And so uh, I think the Air Force is doing the mission quite well right now. And so I, I don't understand the, the need for creating. Well, this. I thought it was just a sort of a, a, another you know, attention grabbing stunt from Donald Trump. But I understand there is some support in the Pentagon for this idea. And if we do have the Chinese starting to make satellites that can shoot other satellites, or if we have space debris sure. mop up robots, but they could also be used to knock out other sure. people's satellites. So this is starting to look like an area where we might have conflict and we might need to intervene in some well, way. Sure. I mean, space has always been the next battleground for decades now. And so, of course, we all have spy satellites. We have ASAT capabilities. Uh, the United States are probably better than anyone else's. And so all that, mi that mission or those missions are already being done by the U.S. Air Force. And so do we really need to take those responsibilities away from the Air Force and create a whole new military line. I, I don't see why, unless unless there's a problem with the way it's being run now that I'm that I don't know about. And to Simonetta's point about the the international collaboration, these countries bringing countries like China in make a whole lot of sense to me because they're basically the ones that are being excluded by the United States government. You know, Europe and uh, Russia and Canada and have all called for bringing China into this international collaboration. And it's been the U.S. government that has really been short-sighted, certain members of Congress uh, that have been able to successfully block it. NASA is not even allowed to have bilateral conversations. When the NASA administrator goes to an international conference, he or she can have multilateral conversations, but not just one-on-one -on -one conversations with China. It's being barred by U.S. law. It sounds like you're both quite optimistic that the uh, cooperation will continue to predominate over competition and possibly conflict. So let's hope you're, you're both right. Leroy Chow and Simonetta Di Pippo, thank you very much indeed. That's all for this edition of Babbage here in New York. 
Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage and this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.